If you're brand new this morning, we are in the beginning of a message series called Blind Spots. Now, here's why this is such a tall order. If you could see your blind spots, they wouldn't be, but you can't see them. And so we're asking the Holy Spirit and we're giving you different tests every week to try to help identify whether or not these are true blind spots in your life. I mentioned last week, I think we're in week seven, and we'll go until um, next week. And next week is actually my favorite of all, of all eight. So please, I know it's Labor Day weekend, but don't, I almost started with this one. I've waited about six years to preach next Sunday sermon. So I am stoked about next Sunday. Do not miss next Sunday. Next Sunday will change everything about you for the rest of your life. Okay? I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. It's the basis of why you do what you do. So I talked about last week how that if, we talked about work, and today we're going to talk about the blind spot of family and how work and family can be two sides of the coin. And I mentioned last week, if you spend all your time at work, you're going to lose your, you're going to lose your family. But if you spend all your time with your family, you're going to lose your you're going to lose your job, right? And your family's going to be pushing you out the door because they like to eat, okay? So there's a, an ability to manage tensions. And I mentioned last week that how successful you will be in life is really determined by how well you learn to manage the tensions. There's tensions in all of our lives. There's money tensions. There's time tensions. There's family tensions. There's work tensions. There's health tensions. Everybody in this room is managing tensions. And how successful you will ultimately be in life will be determined by how well you learn to manage these tensions. And so last week we talked about workaholism. Now you got to work. And there's nothing in the Bible that talks about slothfulness or there's nothing in the Bible that encourages you to be lazy. In fact, Paul says, if you don't work, you don't, you don't get to eat. That's another sermon. Last week, though, we talked about where the pendulum swung too far to the workaholism. Today, I, I want to talk about the blind spot, though, of family. And this one will get kind of personal for some of us, but I, I want to approach this in a little different way. This past um, Tuesday, we have birthday luncheons as a staff, so we all go out somewhere. And so while we were having birthday lunches, I was interviewing the staff, and I asked them two questions. And I got about 15 that I actually asked this question to. I said, number one, what do you think your parents did right? What, what, if you had to summarize your upbringing, what, what did your parents do well? And then I asked them, what did your parents not do well? And that was kind of interesting because both G Griffin Gilstrap and his mother were across the table from each other. <laughs> so I told Griffin he had a hall pass. I said, you get a pass. And, and Elisa Gilstrap, our children's director, she said, bring it. Let's, let's bring it. I'm good with this. So his is in here. I ain't about to tell you which one his is. What did your parents do right? One staff person said they demonstrated love for each other. What did they do wrong? They weren't as affectionate as maybe they should have been. Another staff member, what did they do right? He said, my parents didn't give up on me. Well, that was interesting. I, I know him. I would have given up on him. And, um, <laughs> and, and what did they do wrong? He said they were overreactors. What did your parents do right? Someone else said they provided, they taught us how to give. What did they not do well? She said they lacked unity. My parents were never united. What did your parents do right? 
Even though we were poor, we never knew it. And we were in government housing, and we didn't even know it. We never felt bad. What did your parents not do well? My stepfather dominated my mother, and they even made my mother abusive, and we were in a very abusive situation. What did your parents do right? One person said, my parents balanced each other out. What did they not do right? He said, they didn't live in the real world. What did your parents do right? I think that'd be kind of nice, don't you, not to live in the real world? What did your parents do right? Um, they still brought down the hammer, but instilled love and respect. What did they do wrong, in his opinion? They picked up parenting skills too late, later on in life. What did your parents do right? They protected me from worldly media. What did they not do well? No physical affection was ever demonstrated to each other. What did your parents do right? This woman said, there was little money, and daddy didn't have an education, and then daddy went back to school, and then they made lots of money, and he said, but we still lived at our same standard of living. What did they not do well? She said, dad was a workaholic, and mom enabled him. What did your parents do right? Dad instilled faith in me. What did he do wrong? He didn't live it out at home. Ouch. Okay. What did your parents do right? They provided love and support without pressure. What did they not do well? Um, they, there, wasn't, there weren't enough spiritual boundaries. What did your parents do right? They always provided truth. What did they do wrong? They worked too much. They were never at home. What did your parents do right? They provided lots of laughter. What did they maybe not do so well? They were too permissive. So if you were to think about this question, and I ran into you at Target or someplace, and I asked you, what do you think your parents did well? What would your answer be? And then you would ask the question, I would ask the question, what would they, what'd they not do so, so good in? What, what, where do you think your parents like, missed miss the boat? I think all of us in this room would have an answer, wouldn't we? I saw one, one woman just now gulp, okay? Because she's thinking back in this room, she's thinking back to maybe what they didn't do right. Well, I want to take you back to a Bible character this morning, and in this Bible story, it's a great story, because this story is really revelatory of what God is always doing. No matter how dark the culture is, God is always in the business of raising up spiritual leaders, and he's always in the business of raising up a spiritual culture. Now, that is great news for us, and that's why we should always be people of hope. That's why we should never be freaked out about our country or freaked out about a city or freaked out. I don't know where our country's headed, but I can tell you what God's up to. And Jesus Christ today, what's he doing besides interceding for the saints? Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, and he's raising up and he's establishing biblically functioning communities all over the world. That's what God's been doing, that's what God is doing, and that's what God will do until Jesus Christ comes again. And this is a story of that, a story of being raised up. Now, we begin our story, and I'll just give you the background, because where I want us to jump in in just a minute are places where you don't normally read. So I'm going to have us turn in just a minute to kind of the middle of the story, but I want to give the background. The man's name is Elkaniah. And for some reason, he's got two wives. And I can't imagine why anybody would have two wives. I mean, one wife is enough. One wife is hard. I mean, I, I'm trying to keep one woman happy. I can't imagine. I, I probably should leave this alone, shouldn't I? <laughs> um, he's got two wives, and one's named Paniah, and the other one was, na- was named Hannah. 
Now, Paniah, this, this woman is a baby factory. She can get pregnant. She can push them out. She can have kids. And Hannah's womb is closed. And Paniah leverages that against Hannah. Paniah uses that to her advantage. It's kind of like two women in the kitchen on Thanksgiving morning. That doesn't go over so well, right? So these two women are rivals. And they would go up to Shiloh. And at Shiloh at the temple, Elkaniah because he loved Hannah, would give Hannah more food. He would give her more meat. That's a typical man trying to solve the problem, thinking if he could feed her, she'd be happy. And so finally, did it work? No. And so finally he says to her, don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? What's the answer to that, ladies? No, he don't. She wants to become pregnant. And so she goes to the temple and she's by herself pouring out her heart to God. And she's asking God to get involved in her life and to intervene. Well, Eli, the priest, watches her pray. And the old priest sees her praying, and and her lips are moving. He doesn't hear anything. He thinks she's on the sauce. He thinks she's drunk. And so he says to her, you know, he condemns her and calls her a wicked woman, blah, blah, blah. And she says, not so, my Lord. I'm a woman, you know, in bitterness of soul, and I'm turning to you, and I'm asking you for a miracle. And so she's asking then for him, the Eli, the priest, to pray, and that the old priest will help her to have a son. And so he prays for her, and sure enough, sure enough, she gets pregnant. And what we're going to do in this story is we're going to see where the old priest and his family, he's taking his eye off the ball. The old priest's sons and the old priest, they weren't doing good spiritually, And so we're going to compare and contrast it. So we're going to jump in the story. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you've got a Bible or a phone or an iPad, turn with me to 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to look at some verses that we don't normally read uh, because they're not the popular story uh, here. So let's turn to 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. Here's verse 12. Eli's sons were scoundrels. That's not a good word, is it? They had no regard for the Lord. Now, Eli's in his 90s. His sons are probably in their 40s or 50s. And the sons would now take over as the priests. And Eli goes all the way back to the family of Aaron. Eli's sons were scoundrels. Verse 13. Now, it was a practice of the priest. This is really weird, but this is how they were paid back then. Okay? Just, Just listen to this. This is weird. I don't want to be paid this way. Trust me. It's a practice of the priest that when any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh, verse 15. But even before the fat was burned, the priest would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. Verse 16. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. I'm going to explain all this in just a minute. Don't worry. Verse 17. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So you got this sacrifice, you got this piece of meat, and this piece of meat was not to be eaten raw. That was the fat part was burned up as an offering aroma to God. 
And so what Eli's sons were doing is they were taking the fork and they were sending their servant to go to this big pot and they were sticking the fork in and they were asking for the choice pieces of meat. And they were eating the choice pieces and they weren't letting it be burned up and the aroma going up to God. In other words, they were short-circuiting the whole process and it was a sin. And what they were doing is they were sinful and they were selfish, and they didn't follow protocol, all right? So here we've got Eli's sons were scoundrels, right? The culture's corrupt, the culture's bad. And look at the very next verse. It says this, but Samuel. You see, that's where the music changes. That's where the violins begin to play a little bit louder. But Samuel, now where does that come in? But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen epod. All right, let's keep going. Each year his mother made him a little robe and she took it to him when he, she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife saying, may the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. And then they would go home. Verse 21. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah and she gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now this is a, this is a cool story, folks. We've got all this corruption going on. We've got a dark, it's a dark period in Israelite history. The priest, the religious guy, the high priest and his sons, they're off the wagon. They're, 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 they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. But meanwhile, God is raising up a boy. But meanwhile, there is Samuel ministering in the temple. But meanwhile, there's a little boy wearing a linen epaulet. God is raising up a spiritual leader. I'm just telling you, that's what God does. That's what God has always done. It doesn't matter the family. It doesn't matter the neighborhood. It doesn't matter the community. It doesn't matter the culture. It doesn't matter the country. God is always in the business of in the darkest of places. Our Heavenly Father is, is reaching out and calling men and calling women, boys and girls, and he's raising them up. Meanwhile, Samuel, look at verse 21. The Lord was gracious. Okay, now Eli, who was very old, so first of all, the first offense was these guys are taking the food they're not supposed to be taking. Here's the second offense by these two boys. Now, Eli was very old. He heard about everything that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. Now, these are women who volunteered. These were volunteers, for goodness sakes. And, and these boys are seducing these women who are volunteering to assist with all these different sacrifices. Look at the next verse. So Eli said to them, what do you do? Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading about among the Lord's people, it is not, it is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. This is not a good sign, is it? God's done. Verse 26. And the boy Samuel, notice how this is all woven into this story. Eli's sons, but there was a little boy. Eli's sons were doing this, but Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. And the author is telling us, ding, 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 ding. Something's coming. Something's coming. Something's coming. Get ready. Look at verse 27. 
Now, this is a real interesting part of the story that you may have never read before if you've never read the Bible. All of a sudden, some unnamed prophet comes to Eli. And this unnamed prophet begins to tell the story of what's going to happen to Eli and his sons. Now, a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? This is not good. In the next section, I'm just going to read a few more verses. Can you hang with me for about four more verses? Can you hang with me? This means yes. Okay. All right. God's done. God's done with Eli. Eli served 40 years. God's done. Look at the next part. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise the members of your family who would minister before me forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. And he's raising up a little boy named Samuel. But those who despise me will be disdained. Verse 31. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age. And you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, in other words, I'm going to take care of Israel. I'm going to raise up leaders. I'm going to establish biblically functioning communities. No one in your family line will ever reach old age. Verse 33. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. Look at verse 34. This is encouraging, isn't it? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. Verse 35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. This is what God does in every family. You see, no matter how dark your family may be, no matter how discouraging your family line may be, God is always in the business. He's called some of you, and none of the people in your family even go to church. None of the people in your family have a clue about truth and righteousness, but God has called you, and you've been that Samuel, and you've been raised up for such a time as this. I will firmly establish his priestly house, and they will minister before my anointed one. This is a cool story. This is a cool story. Now, that's our Bible story. I want to use that as a platform for what I want to apply to your life. But I got to go all the way around the barn to come in the front door, so be patient, okay? I'm not here this morning to talk about parenting. I'm not. There's a hundred different opinions on parenting. We could read Thomas Gordon. We could read James Dobson. For goodness sakes, we could even pull up Dr. Seuss if we were really bored. But we can, we can there's a hundred different techniques for parenting. That's not what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about some principles for your family. And this applies to every person, no matter who you are. And there's two questions. And every one of these sermons, I've given you about 10 or 15 different questions as a test. I got two today, only two. And these are two questions that you must answer. 
These are two questions that you must grasp. If you don't get these two questions right, it really honestly doesn't matter what else you do. That's how valuable these two questions are. And so today, these two questions, the first of the question is, is, is really, who am I? And you go, well, Kurt, that is so simple. I came to church this morning for that. Absolutely. Who am I? Because you see, who you are is a value statement. And this is so important that every one of us in this room understands our value. And God is giving us value, and Satan's giving us value. Our culture's giving us message values. But every man, every woman in this room has to understand, who, who am I? I mean, at the, at the core of my being, who, who in the world am I? And the second question that goes right along with that is this, where am I going? And that talks about purpose. So the first question is about your value. Do you have value? Are you valuable? To be a healthy kid or to be a healthy parent, or to be a healthy grandparent, or to be a healthy aunt, uncle, niece, nephew, neighbor, you have to understand does, does, do you have value? And then the second part of that question is, is where in the world am I going? Do I have purpose? And so as we talk about those two things, what they really re- relate to are the next two words that I want you to grasp. Are you still with me this morning? Yes. Okay. This is where we make a shift. It's your identity and your destiny. It is your identity and your destiny. And your identity is do I have value? What is my identity? And the second one is, is where in the world am I going with my life? Do I have purpose? Is there something that I'm supposed to be fulfilling? Now, here's what happens with identity. Identity is very different than destiny. You say, what in the world has this got to do with these guys? It's got everything to do with them. It's got everything to do with them. But before I talk about you, I just want to give some general principles about identity and destiny. Now, you know people who their whole identity is wrapped up in what they do or wrapped up in what they've accomplished or it's wrapped up in something significant that happens in their life. Their whole identity is, you know, I'm a really good or I've got this education or I've got this job. That, that, that's their whole identity. That's not your identity. Because, see, that, that identity goes away. That, that identity is a house of cards. That identity only lasts as long as you're in that particular job or that particular position or that particular stage in life. And if that's your identity, identity, then you will never be able to really understand your destiny. Because your identity and your destiny are two completely different things. Now, I'm going to clear all this up, and we're going to focus the camera in just a minute. So if you're a little fuzzy right now, it's okay. And I'm now going to use Hannah and Eli as some illustrations, because if this is a blind spot for you, you can't see this. So I want to use Hannah and Eli, and then maybe, just maybe, we can expose some blind spots in your life. You see, when you don't understand your destiny... This is what begins to happen. These are fill-ins in the blank if you'd like to, but when you don't understand your destiny, go ahead, Deb, you will fail to instruct your children in the law of the Lord. Well, why? How did Eli do this? How did Eli miss this? 
How did Eli not realize that his primary responsibility as a man, not even as a priest, just as a man of Israel, his primary responsibility was to instruct his kids. So if your kids are incredibly successful, but you haven't spent time with your kids or your grandkids teaching them in the law of the Lord, meaning the scriptures and and God, then then you really don't understand why you're here on this earth. Because Malachi talks about the purpose of marriage. And Malachi says that the purpose of marriage is to raise up godly offspring. Number two, if you don't understand your destiny, you will seem to be blind to the sins going on right under your nose. And so Proverbs says it is wise to overlook offenses, absolutely. And you don't have to be like, you know, the Nazi, you know, on morality, on every little issue. But, but there's principles and guidelines. And so you, you'll, you'll ignore them. Number three, you will wait too long to respond in a corrective manner toward, toward the sin. And if you see a pattern in your child, you see a pattern that's beginning to evolve, there's something to be preemptive about it and, and to talk about this and, and to take corrective measures. If you don't understand your destiny, number four, you will benefit from sin. And that's what Eli did. Eli knew the boys were sticking the fork in the pot, bringing out the choicest piece of meat. He knew it because he was eating it. Okay? So let's look at the next one. When you do understand, though, your identity and your destiny, here's what will begin to take place in your life. Number one. You will go to worship. You see, no matter what happened in Hannah's life, she went to worship. She went by herself. She went to the, to the temple all by, because she knew her identity. I am a woman of God. God is my God and I will follow God. And I have a destiny that I want to raise up godly offspring. She understood it. Number two, when you understand it, you will fast for a miracle. She fasted. She did not eat. She was asking God to intervene supernaturally in her life. When you understand this, number three, you will, even in your bitterness, there's all kinds of things that happen in family. There's all kinds of disappointments. There's all kinds of things that just go awry. But even in your bitterness, you will turn to and not away from God. And that's what Hannah did. Hannah knew God. She knew who she was. She knew what she was to do. And she served and honored the Lord, even in her disappointments. And then number four, you will make promises and you will keep them. And that's what she did. She made a promise. If you give me a son, I'll raise him up. I'll even give him back to you. I'll give him away to the temple and I'll raise a young man that will know you. Now, you see, you and I, as adults, or as students in this room, we are agents of communicating identity. Every one of us in this room, we are communicating the identity of the people who are around us. If you're married, you're communicating the identity. If you're a grandparent, you're communicating identity. If you are a a parent, you're definitely communicating identity. If you are a boss or a supervisor and you own your own business, you are obviously communicating the identity to all the people in in your office. You're communicating, communicating, communicating. I'm still coming to you. I haven't focused the camera yet. And so here's what happens. Satan's communicating an identity also. And here's what Satan does. Satan communicates your value. 
You're a loser. You can't even pass the math test. You can't pass the FCAT. Are you a moron? Are you an, you're the village idiot. Satan is constantly communicating messages, messages, messages of identity. And Satan's also communicating messages of destiny. You don't have a value. For heaven's sakes, you were an accident. For heaven's sakes, you were adopted. For heaven's sakes, nobody really wants. It's kind of funny for heaven's sakes with Satan. Let me change that. Um, For goodness sakes, you were, you're going nowhere in life. You don't have a destiny. You don't have any purpose. You don't have any value. And so those are the messages that Satan communicates, communicates. Now, you just take it for what it's worth. This is my opinion. But I wouldn't let your kids talk like that to each other. If you've got siblings, you're raising two or three kids, we don't let, we've never let our kids talk because they're communicating identity. We've never let Erica, Ethan, Emily call each other idiots, dummies. That is not a part of our family. That's just my opinion. You do, you do what you want to do. Here's what God is saying. Here's what God is saying is, God is saying, you want to know your identity in me? I'll tell you your identity. Here's your identity. To me, this is God, to me, you are valuable, and you are worth the life of my son, Jesus Christ. You are a somebody. You do belong here. Before the foundation of the earth, I planned you. You were no mistake. This is your identity from God. And so today, in this room, if you're a Christian, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl in this room, your identity is not your job. My identity is not that I'm the preacher. Someday I won't be the preacher. Someday I won't be the fisherman. I'm already not the athlete anymore. Those days are way gone. Someday I, the, 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 you, you're in Christ. And that, that identity is forever and forever and forever. That's your identity. The blood of Jesus, the blood of the lamb, the son of God died for you. Are you worthy? For goodness sakes, he shed his blood for you. Does he know how sinful you are? Absolutely. Did he know all the mistakes you would make? Absolutely. He knew everything about you, but your identity is in Christ. All that stuff's been forgiven. You've been cleansed by the blood of God. Do you think you're worthy? You absolutely are incredibly worthy. Here's your purpose. Here's your purpose. You are destined to to great purpose on this earth. I placed you here for purpose. You are already a success. Set your vision high. Allow me to complete great accomplishments in your life. Now, I want to talk about destiny for just a second. Because I think sometimes we get all freaked out about trying to figure out our great, grand, big destiny. Do you have a great, big, grand destiny? You do. Everybody in this room has a great, big, grand destiny. But rather than focusing on that, You try to find it, sometimes you'll miss it. Now, maybe you know what your destiny is, your great big destiny is. You're to teach fourth graders for 30 years. You're to do that. I mean, maybe you know. Maybe you know that in in your company, you're really good at just, you know, sharing Christ. You're really good at inviting people to church. Maybe you understand your great big destiny. Maybe your great big destiny is to be a doctor and find the A cure for cancer. Maybe your destiny, but that's not your identity. Maybe your destiny is you know, to be a teacher and pour your life into kindergartners for 35 or 40 years. That's not your identity. That, that could be your destiny. But everybody in the room has a great big destiny. 
But that's not how you find it. How you find your great big destiny is by the general destinies that God's already called you to do. It's the general things that you do. It's one of the reasons why the Rays are winning, okay? You knew I was going to bring that in somewhere today, didn't you? They've beat some little farm club up in New York the last two days, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Why? Why are they winning? They're not a team of superstars. They're good athletes. They're good. But they play together as a team, right? They're working together. It's the fundamentals. And they are just outperforming the fundamentals, the other teams right now, that they happen to be playing. And so it's the fundamentals of the Christian life. It's the general destinies that you and I do. It's the spiritual push-ups. It's the prayer. It's the fasting. It's the giving. It's the caring. It's the serving. It's the, it's the general destinies of your life. And I know those are general destinies. And all those things that you do continue to funnel you toward your incredible destiny that God has called for you to be. This is why Jesus never got distracted. Well, if you really are the son of God, take these stones and make them some bread because I know that you're hungry. You, you can do that. And Jesus said, no, 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 I don't need to do that. I, 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 I know who I am. Well, if you are the son of God, just, you know, just, just jump off the temple. I mean, his angels will guard you and protect you. Jesus said, I don't need to do that. I I know who I am. Well, if you'll just bow down and worship me, you know, I'll give you all the kingdoms that you see and it'll be a shortcut. You don't have to go to the cross and you can avoid all this pain. This will be great for you. And Jesus is going, I'm not about to do that. I know who I am. I know my identity. Now, how did he know that? Well, right before that temptation scene, Jesus is getting baptized and at Jesus Christ's baptism, this is so cool. At Jesus, how would you like this to happen this afternoon at Honeyman Island Beach if this is you? When Jesus came up out of the water, God spoke. This is my boy. This is my son. And I am well pleased in him. You talk about identity. Jesus never questioned, never doubted, was never confused. He knew who he was. And he knew then his destiny. He had general destinies. He would walk and heal and feed and cure and and teach and mentor. But his destiny was the cross. Not my will. Great drops of blood, but yours be done. Jesus fully understood his identity and he fully grasped his destiny. And for you to go forward in life, for you to help all the people around you, for you to help yourself, you got to answer these two questions. Who am I? Who am I? Well, for those of you that are believers, you're children of God. You're a royal priesthood. You get to go to Mount Zion, the city of the heavenly dwellings. For those of you that are believers, your identity, it's not your job, that's your handle. That's what you're doing for a few years. It's not your hobbies. It's not a few great skills that you have. That's not your identity. That's a distraction if you think it's your identity. Your identity is, see, this is why my identity 
the day I stop preaching some year, hopefully a long time from now, that's not my identity. There goes Kurt the preacher. No, 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 no. There goes a man of faith. There goes a, a man who believes. There goes, a, there goes a man of God. That's completely different, isn't it? Preacher is just a handle. And your destiny, what is your destiny? How has he wired you, designed you? What are the things that he wants you to be able to accomplish?